This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to literary treks episode number 265 hey you know what we are the official star trek books and comics podcast of the trek fm network i'm bruce gibson thank you so much for joining us and it's always exciting to introduce the mighty dan gunther how you doing dan hey bruce uh doing well i'm not sure how mighty i feel today but uh, it's definitely good to be here. So on the last episode, I had introduced you, or one previous to that, I think, I don't know, I called you Mighty Dan Gunther because Keith R.A. DeCandido mentioned on Twitter that you are the Mighty Dan Gunther and wanted me to call you that. So I thought it was appropriate that once again, I call you Mighty because Keith is on the show today. Yes. Uh, well, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, he's on the show. We're always excited when an author drops by and Keith is always so much fun to talk to. So really excited for that conversation. And it's about a book that has, you know, really impressed me recently. So yeah, anyway, we'll speak more about that when we get there, I suppose. Yeah, I'll give a hint. The book is Articles of the Federation. And if any of you have never read it, you better read it. So anyway, let's go to some news items here. We have a new book coming out. It's not a novel, but it is the Star Trek, the official guide to the animated series. That's exciting to me. I'm really excited about this. This has been revealed to us that it's coming in September of 2019 and it's published by Weldon Owen and written by authors Rich Shepis and Aaron Harvey. Hey, Aaron Harvey, that name sounds familiar. Where have I heard that before? Aaron Harvey, Aaron Harvey. Oh, man. Um, oh, man. I'm yeah, it sounds think. familiar. Like Saturday mornings keep popping in my head when I think of Aaron Harvey. Yeah, animated series. If only there was something to link the name Aaron Harvey with the animated series, maybe on this network. Uh, yeah, it, maybe, It'll come to me, I'm sure. Yeah. I keep thinking, maybe he's the host of Saturday Morning Treks, but he hasn't, those haven't come out in a while. There haven't been any new episodes, so maybe I'm remembering wrong. Maybe he does host it and he's been busy working on this book. 
Oh my goodness, I think we've cracked it. <laughs> yes. I'm so excited about this because there really is a lot about the animated series that I'm sure we don't know about. And think again, Star Trek's been around for over 50 years and we're still learning things about the mm -hmm. production of Star Trek either in the original series or the other series, and of course now the animated series. So I'm excited about this. And we also have a synopsis of the book. When the beloved and now iconic original Star Trek show was canceled in 1969 and went into syndication, nobody was expecting how much fan support was out there for the Enterprise and its crew. As it became clear to CBS that there was a great appetite for further adventures, they debuted a Saturday morning cartoon that continued that epic five-year mission, with a number of episodes penned by science fiction notables. The Star Trek animated show was produced by Gene Roddenberry and featured the voices of virtually every named star, including William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, George Takei, Nichelle Nichols, and the rest of the crew in 22 animated episodes that are considered canon by Trekkies the world around. This book is the first to document the animated series, each episode lovingly and authoritatively described by authors who had astonishing access to behind-the-scenes tales, original scripts, and the talent who made it all happen. It's amazing to me that we've never gotten a book like this before, and this really is the first one to document the animated series. I don't know. I mean, the animated series doesn't get the love it deserves. But I feel mm -hmm. like some of that has been changing over the years, and I think this is a perfect time to get a book like this. I'm really excited about reading about Filmation and, and their involvement and how the series uh, got off the ground and just the whole process of, of you know the artwork involved. I mean, everything about it. I'm really excited to get into this, and I will say that we will more than likely discuss it on an upcoming Literary Treks as part of our feature. I think that's definitely going to be a, a given for sure. And uh, yeah, it occurs to me like how much information I have about behind the scenes stuff of all the series and stuff, but not the animated series. And yeah, it's been an oversight. So one that I'm really happy that's going to be uh, corrected. <laughs> uh, well, some other news, which is sad news. We have a Star Trek author, Vonda McIntyre, who passed away recently. She passed away in her home on April 1st and she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer on February 7th. And, uh, two months later she's passed away. So, uh, she's written several Star Trek books, novels. She actually wrote the first original Star Trek novel for pocketbooks. And that was the Entropy Effect, which we did review on Literary Treks once before, and the novelizations of Star Trek 2, 3, and 4, which are some of my favorites. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely a very sad piece of news. Um, Vonda McIntyre has had such a huge influence on Star Trek novels and the Star Trek universe, really. Uh, a lot of authors currently writing today have talked about how she influenced their writing and, and that sort of thing. So... You know, her talent and, uh, for me, the wonderful perspective that she brought to the Star Trek universe will definitely be missed. Yeah, I love the the novelizations, all the detail and the additional scenes and things are added in there. It's, they're the best of the Star Trek um, novelizations out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we should say also uh, a very uh, prolific career outside of writing Star Trek fiction as well. She's written a lot of other books. Um, I was just talking to my fiance the other day, who's a huge Star Wars fan, 
And she, of course, has written a number of Star Wars novels as well, as well as novels not in Star Trek or Star Wars. So, uh, you know, this this loss is being felt, I think, by a lot of people, uh, you know, recently. And and at the time of this recording, the, the episode doesn't come out for a while, but uh, it's uh, she passed away just a couple of days ago at the time that we're recording this. So uh, definitely very keenly felt in a lot of corners of fandom today. And the one thing I want to mention that just dawned on me, the very first Star Trek novel I ever read was Enterprise, The First Adventure, and that was mm. written by her. So the yep, very first absolutely. book I ever read of Star Trek was hers. So, I mean, the great thing is she lives on in her writing. So we always have the books. Definitely. Absolutely. Okay. And then we have our Facebook group in the Babel Conference here. And we're going to see what people had to say about our episode, episode number 263, where we reviewed the book, the Spirit Walk Voyager book called Enemy of My Enemy. And the episode title of Literary Treks 263 was Traveling at the Speed of Plot. (laughs) (laughs) So we have Frosty Winnipeg says, for a story set after the series, Tom Paris de-ages well. (laughs) That's because on the cover, he looks younger, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, it's certainly a, a handsome photo they've used as Tom Paris uh, for the the reference for the cover. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, just looks pretty good. They're back in the Federation now. They have access to uh, modern Federation medicine. I'm sure he, you know, just went in, had a little bit of work done. You know, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with a little vanity. Um, yeah, no, he looks good. <laughs> you know what? There was a woman that worked in our department a few years ago. And when she left the company, she came back to visit us about three weeks later. And I swear, and everybody was saying this, she looked like she had 10 years taken off of her life. I mean, it's like oh, wow. she looked 10 years younger. And it was just because of the lack of stress. I think that's happened to Tom. He's back home. He's out of the Delta Quadrant. You know. Looking good. Yeah, absolutely. He's just uh, let it all go, and and he's so de-stressed. I I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a question from Janessa Ciarda, and I'm apologizing if I'm mispronouncing your name. Uh, she asks, "Are we going to be covering the novel before Dishonor as well?" Uh, and yeah, this is a novel by Peter David, part of the Post Nemesis Star Trek relaunch, uh, Post Nemesis continuity. And uh, yes, we will absolutely be covering that in our kind of uh, throughout this year. We're doing those all those novels leading up to Destiny. And those are novels that are, you know, set in the next generation and uh, Titan and all of those books. So that is definitely included in that. I'm looking forward to that one because there are some strong feelings about that one out there in the Star Trek universe. Uh, Janessa is someone who says she loves that book and she's read it multiple times. Although she totally understands the ending isn't very popular with some folks. Uh, (laughs) I, I, am not going to say much more about that because yeah, we're going to cover that book and I'm, I'm curious also about what my thoughts will be rereading that book because I definitely remember what my thoughts were reading it the first time. Yeah. And I know (laughs) Peter David's thoughts on that book. (laughs) <laughs> on how it ended. And so we'll share that too on that episode. So, um, And then Justin Ozer says that it probably won't come as a surprise, but he actually likes this book. He still really loves this book. 
the first part of the Spirit Walk books, he liked that one and he likes this one. So just as much, he loves the characters. And then he says that he thought it was a great continuation of the first novel and he really enjoyed it throughout. It didn't bother him that he didn't have any specific sense of how much time was passing. He liked the spiritual stuff. And it didn't bother him. And he did think that Christy Golden was keeping it consistent with what he had seen on the show. He does agree that Wesley coming in suddenly was jarring and not needed. But he gives this an 8.5 out of 10 scenes with Kaz shining a mirror on Bossett's behavior. All right. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, like we said with the last episode, um, there are certain things in this book. And, and when he talks about Kaz shining a mirror on Mosette's behavior... Um, you're pointing out one of the things that I really liked about this book. So good, good call there. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, I, I don't think we loved this book, but uh, it's good to see there are definitely other opinions out there. All right. So that just about does it. If you ever want to make a comment of one of our shows, just join the Babel conference on Facebook and find the post for our episode there. And uh, you're welcome to make a comment and we'll read it here on the show. If you don't want it read, you can just put in your comment, please don't read on the show, and we will honor that. I I, I promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So, so speaking of reading, we recently read a book, and we're going to cover it on the feature right now, and so I'm very excited. All right, so we're going to talk about Articles of the Federation. This book came out in 2005 by Keith R.A. DeCandido. And you know what? Why don't we just talk to Keith about this book? Keith, I'm going to tell you, this is a dense book. You got a lot of stuff going on in this thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was just like, and I read this uh, shortly after it came out. So this was my second time reading it. And Dan, I think this was your first. This was my first time reading this book. I, I have never read it before. And uh, yeah, well, spoiler alert for my opinion at the end of the show, but Oh, man, I think like this is now one of my absolute favorite Star Trek novels. Well, thank you. <laughs> wow. I'm a West Wing fan, so it, it, I mean, that, it just that, that tickles That seems everything. to be a, a, a continuing trend is that the people who read the book really like it, but not that many people read it in the first place, which is reflected in the sales figures, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, and I would think maybe some of the reason for that is it's just not your traditional Star Trek book. It doesn't have like a no, it isn't starship. And, on and, it. and in retrospect, in retrospect, I wish we'd put Spock's face on the cover. Um, mm, yeah, because that would have sold more copies of the book, and he's in the book. I mean, it would have been perfectly justified to put it in there. Um, and I just I wonder what happened in the alternate reality where he. We, we decided to put Fox Leonard Nimoy's mug on the cover and, uh, and what effect that had on sales. As it is, um, I often refer to the to articles of the Federation as the music from big pink of Star Trek fiction. Um, in, from, from in the, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, there was a band that was called simply the band. Um, among other things, they were the band who backed up Bob Dylan when he went electric in 1964, 65, thereabouts. And that, that was a very controversial thing at the time because Bob Dylan was a big folk music hero and then he decided to be backed up by an electric band. The band that backed him up was, was a group that was called many things, but ultimately they were just called The Band. And they released an album in 1968, I want to say, uh, called Music from Big Pink. It is... Not the most famous album in the world. The band isn't the best known band in the world. But if you ask any rock and roll musician who was working anytime after 1968, um, 
in that period, they will say that music from Big Pink was one of the biggest influences on them. Hmm. It was a hugely influential album among musicians and among like really hardcore rock and roll fans. It's one of my favorite albums as it happened. But, um, and Articles is a lot in many ways the same way. It didn't light the world on fire sales wise, although <laughs> I got to say it's one of my best reviewed novels ever. But the influence it had has been tremendous. I didn't think, when I wrote it, I figured, I mean, I'd written Nanbako twice at that point. I wrote her election in A Time For A Time For Peace. And then I wrote articles. I figured, you know, she'd have the, there'd be the occasional throwaway reference to her after that as, as an Easter egg, but that would be it. And then Dave Mack decided to use her in the Destiny trilogy. And then I wrote A Singular Destiny. And then it seemed like every third novel she was turning up because everybody actually wanted to write her. And I had act, and I created a template for the Federation government that a lot of the other writers then ran with after that. So that was really cool. <laughs> um, I did not expect that. And, and it, was, it was very gratifying and, and remains gratifying that, you know, the, the, the office of the Federation president and the Palais de la Concorde that, that Dave and I started to set up in the A Time Too miniseries and that I fleshed out in Articles of the Federation has now become the template for how the Federation government has been portrayed in the fiction going forward. Which is which is very flattering and 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 it, and it means a lot to me on a lot of levels. Not the least of which is that Nanbako was based on my great grandmother, and um, so so to see her be a character that so many people wanted to write. She was in like a dozen novels uh, after after articles, uh, and I only wrote one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that was that was really really nice to see and 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 it and it's it's nice to see that I, that I was able to create that little little tiny piece of star trek lore for lack of a better word well that's one thing i notice is going forward from these novels the it's very tempting to use this character and the whole government the government of the federation because it really opens up that world and you think of a lot of the stuff that the enterprise does or happens on deep space nine there would have to be some repercussions or, or or some meaning that it means for the government of the Federation as well. And I love that this really brings that aspect of it and puts it front and center here. And I can tell you why this book really uh, tickled me and, and I thought it was so good is I am a huge fan of the West Wing. And even before getting to the acknowledgments of the book, you know, I was already like, this really feels like the West Wing of Star Trek. And then one then I think non Baco or one of the characters says what's next and I'm like okay <laughs> here we go. The the original notion for doing the book was very specifically John Ordover who is then one of the editors at Pocket Books walking up to me and saying Keith would you like to write a Star Trek version of the West Wing? Um, that's how this whole thing got started. Uh, and I wrote as as a as a sample I wrote a scene which is somewhere in the novel. It's a scene where where. Um, there, there's an issue with the maintenance cycle of the transporters. Uh, the Pinero is talking to one of the, the deputy chiefs of staff about um, where they can't actually use any of the transporters in the building because they're both down for a maintenance cycle at the same time. Right. <laughs> uh, that scene was what I originally wrote as my sample piece of, okay, this is, this is how I would do this. And, I, and yes, there's a huge Sorkin influence there. Um, I've been a fan of, of Aaron Sorkin's work going back to um, A Few Good Men back in the 80s. And um, and I loved the West Wing, and I loved that look at the, the how the sausage is made of, of politics. Um, and I thought 
John and I both thought that Star Trek could benefit from it. The, the project sort of bounced around for a while. Um, and then eventually uh, it wound up being part of the A Time To, and then Marco Palmieri actually took over as the editor. And it was with him that I seriously plotted the novel. And Marco brought a lot to the table there. Um, there, there was a lot of stuff that um, he suggested or that he wanted me to flesh out. Um, in particular, it was his idea to have there be um, the, 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 what happens next after the first contact part with the, with the Triniac. That was, that was his idea that, the, you know, having a state dinner with a, uh, a species that some ship or other, and I decided to go with the, with the, um, uh, a ship, a ship of the Titans class, because those, uh, the Luna class ships were, were specifically designed to be exploratory ships. So I figured, what the heck, let's do that. Um, and one of their ships, you know, made a first contact, they want to talk to the Federation. And, and so they, you know, what are the diplomatic things that happen after that? Um, like you said, that, that, you know, what, what happens next? The, it, it always frustrated me because on, on screen, we saw in depth, the Klingon government, the Bajoran government, the Cardassian government, to a lesser extent, the Romulan government. We almost never saw the Federation government. You know, we, we, three, three times we saw a president. Once we saw the council, the council was mentioned any number of times, but we never really saw it. And, and especially that, that, that was an especially glaring lack in the Dominion War that uh, there were so many things that happened during the Dominion War where uh, the civilian authority over Starfleet should have been seen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, aside from Homefront and Paradise Lost, we never really saw that. Um, and, and, you know, like the, the, the president of the Federation should have been present for the signing ceremony and, and what you leave behind when they, when they signed the peace treaty. Um, my talk was there. I mean, I assume one of the Romulans there was, was, you know, from, from the Romulan government, although that wasn't made clear, but where the heck was the Federation president or somebody representing the Federation president? That's, that's a major thing that should have been there, but it was always Starfleet in, in D space nine, which, which doesn't make any sense. We should, I, we, I wish we had seen more of that. And Articles was at least partly my way of addressing it. Yeah, because you think about how many times the Federation is referred to, not just Starfleet, but the Federation, but we've never really yeah. had a good sense of the roots and what goes on within the Federation government itself. Yeah, Enterprise had a chance to deal with it, but the, the, they, they didn't really get to get that far. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what kind of research did you get go into to uh, write this? I mean, what what is your knowledge about government or is it just, you know, from watching the West Wing or, or are there things that you read always, headlines? I've always been interested in particularly presidential politics. Um, the particularly, well, especially elections, which which was reflected more in, in a time for a time for peace. But uh, I, I become a major news junkie every four years. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by that particular process, but also the, the, the process by which government work is just something that's always interested me. And it's something um, I did a lot of research into reading a bunch of different uh, biographies of people of behind the scenes accounts of, of uh, presidential life. In particular, uh, I read Bill Clinton's autobiography, my life, which was an incredibly in-depth look. Um, that book is heavy. <laughs> um, I really wish eBooks were a thing when I, when I, when I got that book, cause that would have been so much easier to deal with. Um, uh, that in particular, cause Clinton was a Rhodes scholar and he was, a, it was a very thoughtful in-depth look at 
the everyday life of somebody who runs a country. Um, and, and that in particular was a very useful uh, resource. Um, but and just generally, you know, following the news and following uh, what sorts of things. And also just uh, looking at what life in the Federation is like. So what would that mean for government? In particular, we're supposed to be dealing with a moneyless economy, which really challenges you in terms of what a government can do. Because there's a great line actually from the West Wing that Josh Lyman has where he says, um, uh, the only thing that can keep the government from doing anything it wants is politics and money. And money was taken off the table for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, That I still dealt with, to some extent, resource allocation, which is still a factor. But... um, you know, because there's only so many people and only so many things that can be done. Um, and, and even with replicators, you can't really do everything. So that factored into it. But um, the, so the, that was part of the challenge too. And just, just looking at, looking at the history of Star Trek and, and how things were done and what, how, what would the, what would the government behind the curtain that we never really get to see be doing? You know, we really only saw, um, we, the, only, the only three times we saw an actual Federation president were all in times of crisis. It was during the probe attack in Star Trek IV, during the um, uh, the destruction of Praxis and then Gorkhan's assassination in Star Trek VI, and then the uh, declaration of martial law, law in Homefront and Paradise Lost. And I, I'm, I was much more interested in what the day-to-day is, you know? Um, what What kinds of things how how does a, a, a huge democratic government with 150 worlds in it, according to Picard in First Contact, you know, how does that work? <laughs> how do a whole bunch of people from different planets get together to rule? And yes, it's an ideal situation, but Star Trek is idealistic fiction anyway. Um, so that that was part of the interesting thing about it is, is to look at the, the better nature of politics, the good that politics can do, and also the bad. But because there's still going to be jockeying for position, there's still going to be one person's needs over another person's needs. And and the and and particularly when you've got people representing different worlds, you're going to have the tension between what is good for the Federation and what is good for my constituency, which is something that that representatives represent representatives of, you know, whether it's it's uh, members of parliament in 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 the parliamentary uh, system or congressional representatives in, in something like the U S Congress, um, you know, or whatever, whatever the local, the, the local uh, representatives of government are that have a particular set of people in a particular place that they have to answer to versus the needs of the entire country or the entire nation. And that's magnified ridiculously when you're talking about, you know, a, a, a system that spans, you know, multiple star systems. Um, plus, on top of that, it's, it's, you know, dealing with crises. Uh, the, the one big one, of course, was what's the fallout of what's happening in the Romulan government. We had, you know, we, we, we explicitly are having this take place after Nemesis so that one of the biggest things that President Baco has to deal with is the fact that the Romulan Senate was turned to pixie dust and then the person who turned them into pixie dust was blown up. So there's, there, this is a major rival power that is going through massive upheavals and what effect that has. Yeah, because that's also a follow-up to previous books. The new Titan book had come out, Taking Wing. We had Death in Winter, and of course, like you said, Nemesis. So those were building on what happened post-Nemesis, and you were just building on to that. And what was interesting to me about it is that we 
had already started to see, and we're rereading those books here on the show as we go along. So right. as we're seeing the, this, what's happening with the Romulans and the Remans, it's interesting now because we're seeing it from a different perspective, how to deal with it. We're so used to seeing the captain of a starship trying to unite a group of you know, people together or whatever. But now we're seeing it from Earth's perspective, from a distance of t how do we deal with this? How do we manage it and keep the trust right. of the people of the Federation in what we're doing? Exactly. And, uh, part, you know, it helped that we were all talking to each other. You know, we, uh, you know, I didn't, I, Marco was coordinating, you know, several different books and, and, and I was talking to Mike about what he was doing in death and winter. And I was talking with Andy and Mike about what they were doing in taking wing. And, and Marco was talking to all of us and, and Margaret Clark, who was editing death and winter. Uh, so we made sure that we were all, you know, copacetic with each other and on the same page. So that kind of leads me into the next, uh, topic here that I want to talk about. We, we mentioned how many different kind of stories and books that the story pulls from. And I was wondering if you could comment on how necessary you feel it is for readers to have read those other novels. I've, I've read most of them personally, but there are a few references that I caught to stuff that I hadn't read, uh, certain SCE stories, for example. And, uh, you know, this is one of the few novels that I hadn't read at the time, but it's actually one of the few novels that my mom has read. Uh, so she is someone who hasn't read a lot of the other books. I'd, I'd be curious to ask her, and I hadn't thought of that at the time, but, you know, do you find that that might be a little difficult for some readers or are there see, enough kind of clues why, here? Because only about maybe uh, only a small percentage of the stuff that happens there ref refers to other books. Um, and it's no more or less confusing than say the reference to the first contact the IO made with the Triniac, which isn't a reference to any novel. And it's mm -hmm. treated exactly the same way as the past stuff with the Romulans or the, the first contact with the Koa that, that I did at the end of the book. Um, you know, I mean, none of it, I, I honestly, like, just as an example, the, the, the thing with the Koa at the very end of the book I went with that simply because we had already established them that as a first contact in Dave Mack's story, Small World. And I, and I loved that uh, particular novella, and I loved that species that they specifically went to the trouble of seeking out the Federation because they had heard that it was a welcoming place. Um, and But the thing is, that didn't have to be the Koa, but I wanted it to be the Koa to have that hit there. But it didn't. you don't need to have read Small World to follow that. Um, it could have been anybody who was joining the Federation for the first time. Um, so the, the point of that scene was just, I wanted to end it with a new world joining the Federation specifically. I just went with that particular one because we conveniently had it there anyway. And the timeline between when small world took place and when article took place was long enough that it would make sense that they would have worked their way toward being admitted. Um, but I mean, I wouldn't have written it any differently if it was something I had just made up <laughs> um, <laughs> rather than. Uh, using what Dave did in Small World. So, uh, no, I don't. I, I And there's a whole bunch of other stuff in there that has absolutely nothing to do with any other previous stories. Um, they're just there, you know, uh, as, as one of the many things going on at once. So, no, I don't think... I, I, I specifically wrote each one, each story, as if it was the first time this was being mentioned to anybody. The fact that there happens to have been a previous story for some of them shouldn't affect your enjoyment of the book. Well, and the kind of follow-on effect from that, too, that I kind of like is, uh, you know, I've only read uh, probably a quarter of the SCE stories, but that made me really want to get back to it because I was like, that <laughs> does sound really cool. I want to read that story. 
Small, Small World is actually a really good story. It, uh, it was something that Dave Mack originally pitched to Voyager uh, way mm. back in the 90s. Uh, and they wound up not taking the pitch, and he reworked it uh, for the SCE, the idea of a planet in a box. And um, it was really cool. Um, and and it, had, it had such a really wonderful, hopeful ending. And, and I wanted to follow up on it uh, in articles because it's, it's, it's for, from... From the court, from the Da Vinci's perspective, it's the first contact, and so, and this was, you know, five years later, so uh, in in the timeline. So I thought it would be that would be a good time to have them, you know, actually joining the Federation, which is what they wanted. They 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 literally shoved their planet into a box and <laughs> sent themselves on the way to the Federation, uh, in the hopes of of you know finding the, uh, not asylum but a, a new home. I was totally with Kant on that. I, I can't believe that those reporters weren't more excited about that. That was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the Triniac when they show up to this Federation dinner. And, you know, what we learn about this race is that they, oh, they want to be involved. They want to be friends. They're the ones, you know, been reaching out and they, they come all the way to Earth. And, and then they show up and they just all of a sudden show up to this dinner and like, who are all these people? And they start complaining and, and they're acting insulted and they leave and everybody's saying like, this isn't like them. And, and I knew something weird must have been going on. I, I really thought then when we were going back to them, they were going to try to meet with them again. I thought, oh my gosh, this could end a disaster again. And it was kind of going down that road. I was just curious where he came up with that idea. That was, that was something me and Marco worked out. Just the idea of, of you know, uh, of, uh, the types of things that happens when people from different solar systems meet up, there's going to be issues. Um, issues that you can't really foresee, you know, very similar to when, you know, people, you know, on a planet travel to a new hemisphere or a new continent that they've never been to um, and, and have all sorts of issues with, you know, strange diseases that they would never encounter in their, in their home uh, or, or, you know, food, food that turns out to be poisonous to them that they've never seen before, stuff like that on a much larger scale, obviously, but that's, that's the sort of thing that can happen. It's, it's, we, we wanted there to be some sort of conflict, you know, where, where something had gone horribly wrong with the first contact that seemed perfectly fine. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that, you know, a problem that would need to be fixed. Well, one thing this novel features is a huge cast of characters. And, uh, Bruce and I were talking before we started, uh, we, we'd kind of started to ca catalog all of the characters and then realized there's just so many of them and so many interesting <laughs> and, and cool members of, you know, uh, the president's cabinet and her staff and different counselors and that sort of stuff. So I was wondering if you could maybe tell us about some of your favorite characters uh, that you got to write in this novel. You know, this has got to sound pretty pathetic that we, we wimp out at listing all the characters, <laughs> but yet you had to write them all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I had a spreadsheet. <laughs> um, I... It's tough to know. I mean, obviously, Baco was my favorite to write. I mean, she was the central character, and she was she was tremendous fun. But I, I mean, I, I had fun with all of them. There was there was some more than others, I guess. But um, uh, I, I, I particularly enjoyed writing the various individual counselors. Um, one in particular, actually, I had uh, particular fun with was um, uh, Krim, who mm. was. Uh, Played by Stephen Mock on uh, an episode of on the in Deep Space Science Circle trilogy, mm -hmm. um, Marco had said that they wanted to make him 
uh, Bejar's uh, representative uh, on the council when Bejar joined the Federation. And, um, and I loved that idea so much. <laughs> and, uh, and I really wanted to, to run with that because I loved that character. I, I wish that character had come back and I loved the opportunity to write him because I thought he was a really good, intelligent, fascinating character. And so writing him was great. Um, I love any chance to write Spock. Uh, Spock's always fun. Um, and, um, who, oh, um, well, in terms of who I did not expect to, to enjoy writing as much, um, uh, the character of Osla Granit, who is one of the, uh, one of the reporters who has since gone on to appear in several more novels. In fact, she's a, she's a major part of, of, um, Dave Mack has used her in a couple of his more recent novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, she, she was, she was great. I had a great time with her. I like, I, I like there, there, there are several types of characters I tend to come back to in my fiction. One is cops, one is uh, politicians and one is reporters. I, I love writing journalists and, uh, Grant turned out to be, uh, great. I loved writing her story of her, you know, following up on Tesla and, and uncovering the conspiracy and whatnot. Um, and I mean, like I said, I liked all of them. I, I mean, I, I, the, the ones I didn't come up with, we're all, you know, uh, ones who were established and, and fun to write in their own way. Um, but uh, two, two more that I, that I particularly liked were Talatric and Matthew Masabuko, who were the representatives of Earth and Vulcan. Uh, Vulcan mm-hmm. being, uh, Talatric being from Vulcan. I, I had created her in an earlier novel. Um, I, 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 I like them in particular. But I mean, yeah, like I said, I liked all of them. I, I, it was a fun book to write. I, I enjoyed all those people, even, even, even Glear, who was a pain in the ass. Um, although I didn't create him. Uh, Dave Mack created him for the, in the Time 2 series. I just got to run with him being a jackass. Um, <laughs> I, I, I more or less was picturing him as the same as the Richard Dreyfuss character from The American President. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, it was, I'd be hard-pressed to find a character in that novel I didn't enjoy writing. <laughs> I like the idea of their floor fights on the counselor on the council being legendary. And I just, I loved seeing that from the character's perspective, like, Oh, here comes Gleary's taking the floor. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We even, had, I mean, I even made reference to one we'd seen on screen, which was, um, uh, Sarek and Camerag in, um, right. in Star Trek four. Yeah. You know, I, I that, that was that, that particular like that. discussion in that movie was one of the inspirations for, for how the council would be set up the idea of a speaker's floor and, and, and such and how that would work. Um, I was waiting for an off screen character to yell, you pompous ass. (laughs) (laughs) Now that would, that would violate the rules. (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking about when you were talking earlier about reading the Clinton book and Mm -hmm. Of course, this book was written about 15 years ago, uh, Articles of the Federation. If you were to write this today, knowing what you know of politics in the last 15 years and how things have played out, do you think you would have created different types of characters or situations in this book? Or if you could write another Articles book, what, what would you do a little differently now? I don't think I would have done it differently at all. I, I, the characters I was writing were characters who I thought would be appropriate for the Star Trek mythos specifically. That hasn't changed. Um, and, you know, there's, I mean, the only new Star Trek we've gotten since then have been the, the, the Bad Robot movies and um, Discovery, neither of which has really given us any more about Federation politics than, than, than we had before. So 
Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think I would have done it any differently. Um, the, the characters are all, I mean, yes, the, 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 I think the West Wing inspiration still would have been there because even though the West Wing itself is, is, you know, almost 20 years old now, um, that was, that was, uh, that was at least a partial influence on some of the characters. Uh, but also the, the, the relationship that a president has with her chief of staff as portrayed in, in the West Wing between Bartlett and McGarry and in articles between uh, Baco and Pinheiro is also very much, it's a very Star Trekky in relationship because it's very much like the relationship a captain has with her first officer. Um, and, and that's kind of, you know, the, the, it, the on, a, on a starship, the captain is the one who makes the decisions and the first officer is the one who executes the decisions, which is also more or less what the relationship between the president and the chief of staff is. And so that's kind of what I was doing there. I was, I was doing, you know, Baco and Pinheiro as the captain and the first officer of, in essence, the Federation. Uh, so, yeah, that, that still would have been there. That, that's, that relationship, I think, would not have been any different. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I wrote, I wrote that novel when George W. Bush was president of the United States. So, you know, um, I, the fact, the fact that, you know, I wrote it when we had a really terrible president and if I wrote it now, I'd be writing it when we had a really terrible president. So, you know, uh, I, I don't think it would have, I don't think it would have changed anything in how I wrote it. No. I have to say, I, I treated this novel kind of the same way as I treat the West Wing, which is kind of like a a bit of a balm <laughs> to to soothe me a bit over you know. <laughs> well, I mean that's real that's world what presidential Star Trek stuff. Is. I, I said before, <laughs> Star Trek is idealistic fiction. It's not supposed to be realistic. It's supposed to be hopeful and supposed to be you know, in essence, utopian fiction. It's not mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not. I mean, I'd love it if that's how the future was going to turn out, but it's not bloody likely. Um, but it's something that's worth aspiring to. And, and so, yes, it's going to be an idealized version of politics, but it's an idealized version of humanity, too, um, and an idealized version of the future. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's you know, it's something that's worth, you know, be, it's, it's worth wanting and worth aspiring to. Yeah. Well, and it's not like the future is perfect because they are dealing with things that aren't perfect because, for example, there's the cover up that... Uh, with President Zeif, right. who left office, and you yeah. touched on uh, Graniv, the reporter of that incident. And so I love that you were playing off the Tezwa incident with the uh, the cannons and being supplied by the Federation and the cover-up with all that and how she started interviewing people and then she gets the information of what really happened and she finds out about the cover-up and does she publish it or does she not? And it also makes me wonder what things are out there today even that reporters have found out but are afraid to report it because it could have devastating effects on the population and the community. Yeah, it's, 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 it's freedom of the press means they, the press is free to say whatever they want but it also but it does not free them from the consequences of what they of what they write and that's a you know every writer makes a decision not just what to write but what not to write and that's true of fiction writers and it's true of journalists and it's true of nonfiction writers you know it, it's you're always making a decision there um and and the advantage of freedom of the press is that you're not being forced to make that decision one way or the other and and that's why i wanted to emphasize in there that you know the that the government again, idealized government, was not going to stop her. If she ran the story, they'd run the story. 
They were they were not going to stop her from doing that. Mm-hmm. But um, there uh, but uh, there were going to be you know some sort of consequences for it. And I thought I thought Ross resigning you know was was the best compromise. Um, and besides, you know, guy was guy had been through a lot. <laughs> yeah, kind of almost lost perspective, I'd say by. Yeah. Some of the stuff well, he was I, yeah, the, saying, the, the, the even though he was that, covering that up for thirty-one, he wasn't given a choice. Um, yeah, <laughs> and and I mean, I quite possibly my least favorite thing in the Star Trek universe is Section Thirty-One. Um, mm-hmm. it, I think it was a terrible idea, and it's a it's a horrible crutch um, for basically circumventing what Star Trek is, um, and and. Deep Space Nine relied on it too much. Enterprise relied on it too much, and Discovery is relying on it too much on it now. Um, it's it's a way, and and far too many fiction writers have used it as an excuse to basically get away with not living up to those ideals uh, the Federation is supposed to stand for. But oh well, it's Section Thirty One. They're the dirty tricks people, and that's okay. It's like no, it's not okay, and it shouldn't be part of it. Um, but we're stuck with it. So, and since we were stuck with it, and since I wanted to follow up on you know, what happened in A Time to Heal, um, and, and which has further been followed up on uh, since then in, in Dave Mack's Section 31 novels, with, with Granov being part of it, um, that uh, I, I think that's that's been fun to, to work with and, and show with. I mean, because, yes, it's an idealized government, but it's not perfect. And, you know, sentient beings are not perfect, and they're going to make mistakes, and those mistakes will sometimes have consequences. So that's that's also interesting to deal with as well. Another aspect of the story that I, I found interesting and, and specifically I found it interesting because of, of kind of the effects that it has and what it says about media and that sort of thing was the, the Reman asylum story. We have this ship full of Remans who uh, were supporters of Shinzon kind of seeking asylum supposedly in the Federation and you know, they, they, the president kind of decides to do this kind of backdoor deal asylum, but make it look like something else, at which time they, you know, decide to make a suicide run at the Starfleet outpost and they all die. And specifically what this story was, was what was interesting about this story to me was we have this recurring, uh, basically current events program, uh, illuminating the city of light. And I love the idea of talking heads in the Federation. And I really <laughs> yes. wish we'd seen this on the, in shows or in movies more because everybody has these different uh, spins that they're putting on this story, just like you'd see on, you know, a cable news show today. And, you know, how this incident makes the president look, even though, you know, 99% of it was completely out of her hands. But, you know, still, we're going to blame her for this. We're going to say it's all her fault. And other people are going to say, no, it's, she had nothing to do with it and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I, I just, yeah, I just wanted you to talk a bit about, you know, bringing that kind of very modern feeling of media into the Star Trek universe a bit. I, the, the, we, we very rarely see the Star Trek universe from the point of view of civilians. Deep Space Nine came closest, but even then, it was all still basically the military. Um, and, and even the civilians that we, we had there were, we saw them in terms of their interactions with Starfleet and with the Bajoran militia in the case of Deep Space Nine. Um, and, you know, any other civilians we've seen have been one-offs, they've been scientists, and, they're, and again, we're seeing them through the Starfleet lens. 
it's a much bigger federation and having the news programs and not just the news programs, but the people who were watching the news programs was, was, was an attempt to just sort of show the larger tapestry of life in the federation. That was going to um, be my next. I loved all those little glimpses into the people watching these programs and they're arguing <laughs> yeah, with each yeah. other and that sort of thing. I love that. Exactly. Um, it, it, it's, it's just, I mean, part of the whole point of the novel was to show the Federation beyond Starfleet, and mostly in terms of, of the government, but, but to a lesser extent, you know, what it's like for a reporter, what is it like for, you know, a student, what's it, you know, a uh, random person on random world, uh, you know, wanting to keep up with current events. Um, it was a little too much like late 20th and early 21st century uh, news programs, which probably will make the book look dated 25 years from now. (laughs) One might hope. (laughs) um, um, But it might not. Who knows? I mean, the thing is, it's still the the point of it. uh, The point of of that particular thing of eliminating the city of light is that it's people talking about, uh, about the, the, the events of the day and, and discussing it and dissecting it and and figuring out what it all means and, and what's important. Um, there's a great line in, in what is mostly a dreadful movie, but there's a, there's a wonderful line in, in the movie Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice where um, Holly Hunter's character, who's a U.S. senator, uh, says that the essence of democracy is conversation. Um, that, you know, we talk about things and we discuss them and we, we exchange ideas back and forth and, and come to a consensus based on that, not just unilateral decision making, but conversations talking talking to each other and that's and and journalism and and that type of panel discussion is part of that uh is is talking about things and and figuring out what it all means you know yeah one of the other things is the aligar where there was this uh, trade agreement with them during a time of war and as baka's like you know i don't care really what the excuse is we use war for excuses for times but this planet has 90 percent of its population used a slave they're enslaved in this planet and so the idea is she's deciding we're not going to renew because there really isn't anything significant that they're trading with that they need to keep things going but again this is another political thing that she has to deal with that was partly inspired by actually the movie insurrection um Mm. where where the the federation was dealing with the sona and it was and it was justified at least in part because of of the dominion war um and just in general, the uh, the compromises that we saw the Federation making, again, uh, in Paradise Lost and Homefront um, and any number of other places where Federation ideals were sacrificed on the altar of the war effort. And I just thought it would be worth exploring, you know, because once, once you open that door, it's really hard to close it again. Um, just, just as, uh, one example, the, the proliferation of things like drone strikes that we're seeing in the U S now, um, which is something that has been continued despite it's, you know, it was, it was something that was originally, you know, developed to fight the war on terror, but has been used far beyond that. And this is something that really, you know, should be examined and hasn't been nearly enough. Um, that, that something you know, for that matter, the use of atomic weapons uh, in World War II, which, you know, the, the next several decades were people living in fear of that happening again. So that that's what inspired that in particular is the idea that, you know, the stuff you do 
once once you've actually broken the dam, once you've actually squeezed the toothpaste out of the tube, getting it back in is very difficult. And uh, and and we are you know we already saw uh, on Deep Space Nine and an insurrection where the Federation was willing to compromise its ideals because they were fighting a war, but the war is over. You know, war has been over for you know at this point five five years. Uh, it's it's really time to get back to being the Federation again. Well, another aspect of this novel that that kind of caught my eye and piqued my interest a bit was this uh, kind of negotiation between Baco and Martok with regards to um, people doing scientific research. And there's kind of a a back and forth because Martok, uh, they, they don't like the Mizarians who we know from the episode Allegiance were, you know, these people that bent over for any dictator who came along and, you know, <laughs> would uh, yeah. surrender to them. And uh, I was wondering what kind of inspired that story because it, it, it seemed familiar to me somehow, but I couldn't figure out exactly what the inspiration might've been. Um, it, it's inspired by a lot of cases where, um, government groups have not worked with, or, or private groups have not worked with a certain, with certain think tank or seg or, or, group of experts because of a belief they have. Um, you know, we won't work with them because they're not Christian enough. Um, you know, we won't work mm-hmm. with them because they're too Christian. We won't work with them because they have gay people. We won't work with them because um, they believe in creation science, you know, uh, but, and, and there's good, there's good and bad there. But the, the whole idea that you, and, but, and oftentimes it's because of, a belief that they have that has absolutely nothing to do with the subject under discussion. Um, but because there's this ideological difference, it keeps them from working together. Um, and so, you know, we, we won't work with this soup kitchen because they're Muslims, you know, which is mm. stupid because they're, you know, they're still feeding people, something like that. So that, that's what I was going for. There it was sort of a, a, a Klingon version of that. Um, and of course, you know, there's nothing Klingons would hate more than people who surrender. So, so that's what I was going for there. The, the you know, that, that sort of tension, which you, which you do see. Periodically. I also like the storyline with Baco uh, helping with the negotiation of water rights with uh, the Carrion or the Carrion and the Deltons. Um, yes. It, it was ever established previously that the Deltons had water issues. No, that was just something I, I needed. I needed some sort of, con- I mean, the, the the conflict between the Deltons and the Carrions was previously established in other novels, and and uh, I just wanted to play with it, um, and I just used water reclamation rights because that's something that would be an issue. Just uh, as I, I just I it was there wasn't anything in particular that inspired it. I just wanted there to be some sort of source of conflict, so there it was. I kind of like that scene because it, it's you know. Um, mediating a conflict between, and I guess they're not two Federation members. Carry on isn't a member of the Federation, but the uh, kind of ultimatum that's issued <laughs> there in the meeting room, I felt, I, I, it just felt like Baco to me. Like it was just so perfectly <laughs> in character for her. And like I said, I hadn't read this novel before, but I've read, you know, basically all the novels that follow it. So I love this yeah. character and to have this novel focused mostly on her was just so great. And I'm really sad. It took me this long to read it. <laughs> hey, better late than never. You know, I would like her in real life to be 
a president, but I think I'd also <laughs> I think I'd also like her to be running the company I'm at. <laughs> I just kind of telling people off. And she like, was, yeah, I, for for all that she was inspired by my great grandmother. My great grandmother's not the only influence. Um, there's there's three other people, one fictional, two not. Uh, who went into the development of the character. The fictional one, obviously, is is Josiah Bartlett. Um, mm. there, there's a lot of, of Jeb Bartlett in her. Um, but there's two other uh, women who, who uh, in particular, influenced uh, him. One, a journalist named Molly Ivins, um, who is from Texas. Uh, great, great journalist. She was the one who first nicknamed George W. Bush as Shrub. Um, she did a lot more good things than that, but that's always that's probably what she... Uh, wound up being most famous for. She referred to him as that when he was governor of uh, Texas. And uh, and the other is a, a, another woman from Texas, actually, uh, Ann Richards, who is, uh, was a, another previous Texas governor, uh, who gave a magnificent speech, the keynote speech at the Democratic National Convention in 1988. I want to say 88. It was either 88 or 92. I forget. It was, it was one of the two times that George H.W. Bush ran for president. Um, and, uh, it was, it was a phenomenal speech and she was, she was, she was a woman who did not take any crap at all. And, uh, th those, all four of those personas were all kind of mushed together. Uh, <laughs> I can so see that. <laughs> into, into President Baca. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, if you, and trust me, if you'd met my great grandmother, you would have seen it too. Cause damn, that was, yeah, she was, she didn't, she, my great grandmother, uh, came to the United States from Italy as a teenager uh, in the early part of the 20th century. She um, moved out. She came into Philadelphia and then uh, went out to rural western Pennsylvania out in a town called East Brady, which is in the heart of limestone. At the time, it was the heart of limestone country. So limestone mining was like where a lot of people, a lot of immigrants went there to, to work the mines. And she proceeded to have 10 kids uh, between 1923 and 1946. So most of these kids were raised during the heart of the depression. Um, and you could, I don't think you could find 10 kinder, nicer people than, than my grandmother and, and my great aunts and uncles. They are all good hearted, sweet, loving people. Um, uh, there's, I mean, like any family we've, we've got weirdos and, and crazy people and, and odd skeletons, but none of those derive from those 10. Um, <laughs> some of their kids are another story, but, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but Nana raised 10 really good kids and, uh, and she was just, she was, a man, you know, because she had 10 kids, she was the matriarch of this gigantic family that, you know, uh, and she was just a remarkable woman. And, uh, and, and it, it, there was no question in my mind when I was tasked with creating a Federation president that it was going to be patterned after her, partly because it was good. I, I was always going to write a female president. That was that was always going to happen because in 2004, when A Time For A Time For Peace came out, the page on which Baca was announced as being elected president, that page was the first time in the entire history of Star Trek as a franchise in any form that a Federation president was female. Every single president that had been established on screen, on the page, in the comic books, in the role-playing games, in whatever... Any president that, that was created for any Star Trek fiction up until 2004 was male. Lots of different species, but, but all dudes. And this struck me as a major lapse. 
And I immediately set about to rectify that. And several female, I established several past female presidents in articles in particular. Uh, I established a mess of different um, past presidents uh, in there. And, uh, and for that matter, Baco's successor is also, is also uh, uh, sort of female Andorian. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and I'm, I'm gratified to see that because that, that was, that was a serious lack. Yeah. I noticed, uh, there's an appendix in the back that you list mm-hmm. of the past presidents. And I, I saw that there were some in there that came from other sources and some that you invented on your own. Like you're saying, you added more female presidents. So we have a history of that going on, but that's, that's a nice little addition. Unfortunately, to I was one, one I was unable to include because it hap- it wasn't established on screen until after, um, I turned in the manuscript was Jonathan Archer. Um, cause, uh, I'd already turned in the book and it was, it was, it was in the midst of, of being printed when in a mirror darkly came out and revealed that, that Jonathan Archer was, was one of the early Federation presidents. Um, I would have been happy to include him there if, if the timing had worked. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is kind of a cliched question and it's one that I'm sure well, you've tried to give asked. a cliched answer. Now. <laughs> Perfect. Do you have, uh, anybody in mind um actor wise that you would like to have played uh nan bako i have been asked this question so many times and there's a whole <laughs> topic on the trek bbs on casting the characters of trek literature in which the, this question has been bandied about multiple times um there is an actress and i don't remember her name now and she's she's dead now so it wouldn't work she appeared on one episode of the shield she's like a uh theater actor in Los Angeles who, who has very few uh, screen credits, but she was perfect. It's like, I saw, she played an emergency room doctor in like one scene on a first season episode of the shield. And I thought, yeah, that's her. Hmm. But um, in, in terms of people <laughs> more well-known, there's no one person in particular I have in mind. Like there's certain characters where I've cast them in my head. Two, two guys I mentioned before, uh, Talatric and Matthew Mazzabucco. Those two I've very specifically cast. Uh, Talatric is Judy Dench, mm. and uh, Mazabuko is uh, Zake Smoke, um, who I'm not sure if he's still alive. He may have died recently, but but th- those two are the two actors I had in mind, and and they were very much their voices when I when I write them. Um, with with Baco, I I know what she looks and sounds like, and it doesn't perfectly match any one particular person. Having said that, um, two suggestions that have been made. I'm sorry, three suggestions that have been made online that that any one of which I would be fine with and I think would do a good job. One is Helen Mirren, although I think Mm. she would have to really put on, she she wouldn't work in a British accent. She'd have to put on an an American accent for that to work. Uh, Kathy Bates and Glenn Close. Hmm. I think of those three, Bates would probably be the best choice. Now, did you establish that Baca was American? I, I don't recall that. No, but I don't think her speech patterns would work with a British accent. Gotcha. Her her style her style of no, I mean she's she's from Cestus Three, so she's not American by any definition. Well, that's true. But mm-hmm. um, I I just don't think I, I could be wrong, but I think her style of speaking would work better with an American accent than it would with a British accent. Um, yeah, I I definitely get that with uh, kind of the colloquialisms and the fact that she talks yeah. about baseball a lot. <laughs> wow, well, yeah. but hey, baseball baseball is, a, is an international sport, although not so much in britain or for that matter australia um but it's 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 not just an american sport it's popular in canada it's part popular in japan it's popular in in the netherlands it's popular in um 
in Korea. Korea in, loves um, baseball. <laughs> yeah, and and um, ah, Taiwan also. So. Mm. Ancestus three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that I stole from Deep Space Nine. Although, having said that, I actually, in addition to the spreadsheet listing the, the mapping out the entire. Uh, Federation government and and Pelé de la Concorde staff. I also uh, worked out the entirety of the Cessna Baseball League. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, yeah, what the team names are and and all that stuff. That was fun. <laughs> speaking of the cestus three team names i've got to give a little shout out to the uh the receptionist uh outside baco's office and i can't remember his name for the life of me but thank you the most sarcastic vulcan ever and i love that guy (laughs) okay well uh, i i don't think he's the most sarcastic vulcan ever because they all are (laughs) <laughs> Seriously, there is no more sarcastic species in the universe in any work of fiction than Vulcans. What? I mean, I, I, I recently rewatched the original series for, for Tor.com and it's like, yeah, damn. <laughs> you know, and, bo- and both <laughs> Leonard Nimoy and Tim Russ were particularly good at it. Um, but yeah, Vulcans are sarcastic sons of bitches. Um, but yes, I, I, I particularly had fun with, with Vivek making him I, I sort of wrote him the same way some writers uh, of Batman comics write Alfred, um, mm. <laughs> and 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 it's also how, uh, uh, in particular, Jer- Jeremy Irons' version of of Alfred, and to a lesser extent, the one uh, from Symbolist did in Batman the Animated Series back in uh, in the '90s, uh, played him as uh, having having just a little bit of attitude there. You know, I was just thinking about Tyler Perry. He does those movies uh, with Medea, and he plays Medea. I was thinking, if you made this movie, you could play Baco. You just dress up like Baco, like Tyler Perry dresses up like Medea. Right. That would totally work. (laughs) You got the hair, you know? (laughs) Well, hair's easy. You can just put a wig on someone. That's true. Yes. Yes. And by the way, the last thing I really wanted to mention that I love about uh, in this book is the commencement speech that she makes at Starfleet. Thank you. I was that. Okay. Of all the things that are in that book, I think that's the part I'm proudest of. I have actually done that at readings uh, for a long time, including um, in 2016 for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. I uh, curated a Star Trek reading thing uh for the new york review of science fiction it was uh myself david mack and emily asher perrin and uh and stephen barnes uh i did an interview with stephen barnes as well but the um uh me dave and and emily all did readings dave wrote read from the cold equations trilogy um emily read emily uh, hasn't written has written about star trek but hasn't written any star trek fiction but she read uh an old uh 70s piece of slash fic which was hilarious and um and then i read the commencement speech because that that commencement speech i'm inordinately proud of that i i was really pleased with how that turned out um because i wanted to to have a speech that sort of spoke to what the federation is about and what star trek is about um and and it was it was a lot of fun writing that uh and and i'm glad it, it it resonated with people uh, as much as it has, because I think that's that's arguably the best written part of the book. Uh, so thank you. I'm I'm glad that worked for you guys too. 
Yeah, it was definitely, like you said, like it just encapsulates kind of what this whole Star Trek thing is about. And, you know, <laughs> it, it just, it adds yet another thing that I can point to and people ask me why I like Star Trek. And I could just say, just read this and, you know, <laughs> then you'll get it. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's a great, if anybody was like, well, what really is Star Trek about? Just say, read this part. That That would do it right there. Well, thank you. That that means a lot. Thank you. So I think that just about wraps things up. Uh, I don't know if you have anything else you want to say. Um, uh, I, I think that's mostly it. Um, it was it was a fun exercise to, you know, work on all the different elements of it and, and have a book that takes place over the course of an entire year or two. Um, I didn't. It, it was also a challenge to try to come up with conflicts for the characters to have without compromising the idealism. Um, but also I'm extremely proud of the fact that I wrote an entire hundred thousand word Star Trek novel that is entirely people sitting in rooms talking to each other. It is, <laughs> it is the quintessential talking head. Cause that's what politics is. It's, it's like I said before, democracy is a conversation. This is, this entire novel is people sitting in a room, in rooms talking to each other or over view screens, whatever. But it's it's all talking. It's it's it it is like I said, the quintessential talking heads book because that's what politics is, and and it, it it's what I always point to when everybody's like, "Well, this novel is just talking heads." It's like, well, if it's done right, that can still work. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did also put it out in our, we have a listeners only group on Facebook. I did put out the call for people to submit some questions there. So there are a few questions, a few of which have to do with the book and then some kind of more generally and, and about other books as well. Okay. Um, so I have a question from Brandon Harbeck. Uh, you answered, you talked a little bit about this part. What was the coordination process like for inclusion of bits from other books, like the disappearance and the reappearance of the Titan and the Red King? Um, but he's also got a second part that I really like. Was there an arc in mind for Baco for after Articles of the Federation while you were writing it? Uh, whether Goodness or not no. any of it actually happened between articles in the fall. <laughs> I had absolutely, no, I didn't think anybody, I, I, I figured this was going to be a one shot. Maybe if it did well, I might do a sequel, but I didn't really have anything specific in mind. Um, the, I, like I said, I didn't think, I didn't think we'd ever really see her in depth again after that. Um, hmm. That all changed when Dave, emailed me one day and said, Hey, I want to use Nambaco in the destiny trilogy. Um, and I said, all right. <laughs> um, and, and Dave ran every single scene she was in by me and he absolutely nailed it. I made very few changes, uh, to what he originally wrote. Um, hmm. he, he captured her voice perfectly. I was, I was, I was really pleased and impressed and gratified. And, and honestly, I mean, for, for all that I created her and, and had her in, a time for a time for peace. Also, uh, it's Dave putting her in the destiny trilogy that really made, made her into a recurring character at that point. Um, and certainly that, that was a lot. Well, no, I, I don't want to say that because I mean, yes, destiny sold ridiculous amount of copies. So there were a lot of people for whom that was their first exposure to her, but she did also first appear in a time for a time for peace, which was also a very popular book and which I'm, which is still in print. Um, it, it amazes me. Um, and, and, and gratifies me also. I mean, the, the Time 2 series came out in 2004. 
Um, so it's, it's 15 years old. Those books are still in print. They're still read. They're still talked about. Um, and, uh, that blows my mind, frankly. Um, but the destiny trilogy also is even, you know, it was an even bigger hit. Uh, and that, uh, that was only four years later. And that's still, you know, talked about and, and reprinted and, and such. So, uh, it's still very much in the, in the popular consciousness. So the, but no, I didn't have an arc in mind because, like I said, I didn't think I thought that would be it. <laughs> um, and and then she wound up becoming this recurring character, so there was definitely no arc in mind because it was basically just a case of using her when the plot called for a president. Um, so yeah, it just sort of happened. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Patrick Carlin has a question. Uh, speaking of destiny, uh, about your follow-up book, A Singular Destiny. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I have to agree with his comment here. He really enjoyed it, especially the character of Sonic Pran. And we were—he was wondering if you had, if you were planning on including the character in future Trek projects that you would have had the opportunity to write. I would have loved to have included both Baco and Pran in future Star Trek books, except there have been no future Star Trek books because I haven't done any new ones. Uh, you know, the the right after. A singular destiny. When a singular destiny came out, is also when um, that w- that was also when Marco Palmieri was laid off, and then all of a sudden, nobody at Seven Sister was interested in talking to me anymore. And that's still been the case ten years later. And I, <laughs> life of me, I don't know why. Um, having said that, that's not un. I said this before. It's not unusual when there's an editorial regime change. Some writers wind up being left out in the cold, and others wind up suddenly getting more work. Editors have people they prefer to work with, and the current editors don't prefer to work with me um nobody else has shown any interest in using pran uh he's the type of character that you can use or not use as you see fit the character of pran in particular is a character i've been wanting to do for a long time i wanted to write a character and i thought star trek in particular was the perfect place for this a character whose superpower in essence is talking to people and talking people into things um he has absolutely no special skills at all beyond that he's just a good talker he is good at getting people not not convincing people to do things but convincing people of to see the to see the right point of view um and that's that's really all he's capable of i'd I'd written a character like that for for a fanfic thing i did online way back in like the early 90s um where where we were all supposed to do versions of ourselves with some kind of special ability and what i did for myself was that um the the ability to just talk to people um and and that was what pran was supposed to be so he's you know a character that could still be used um and who knows maybe you know someday someone's sister will decide hey maybe that decandido guy should write another book we'll see well we certainly all hope so because you know i i love your books um we've we've kind of (laughs) done a big swath of them recently just because this was kind of the the period we're in right now was a real height for for your books here and uh, it's been a lot of fun to revisit these and uh, it'll be quite a while before we get to a singular destiny we're kind of on track to do destiny towards the end of this year so uh you know we should probably we should get you back on to talk about that one because that's another favorite of mine yeah pencil it in about a year from now yeah yeah (laughs) Anything else from the Facebook group? 
Uh, Justin Ozer had a question about uh, the Invincible two-parter from the Corps of Engineers books, which I actually <laughs> read myself recently. Um, he says, one of the things I loved was the storytelling format that consisted entirely of logs, messages, letters, and transcripts. How did this decision come about to use that style? And what was it like co-writing with David Mack? Uh, to answer the first question, the epistolary format is a very old one that uh, has been done. Both both uh, Frankenstein and Dracula were written that way. Uh, it's one that I, I like doing every once in a while because it's fun. Um, it doesn't always work. Um, although having said that, I did, I did another Star Trek story like that in the mirror universe anthology shards and shadows. I did a story that way as well. Um, it has its drawbacks, but it also, it's, it's a fun way of, of uh, t telling a story in a, in a different manner, um, and, and getting different perspectives on, on each event. Uh, as far as working with Dave was, uh, that was, that was great. Um, Dave at the time had not written any uh, prose fiction directly. He had written nonfiction uh, and he'd written screenplays, but uh, he still wasn't entirely comfortable doing prose fiction. So the way that collaboration worked was he wrote the outline for that story. And uh, Dave writes very detailed outlines. <laughs> um, so this was, this, was, this was a lot to work with. And then I wrote the manuscript based on that outline which he then read over and made notes on and such. Um, at first, we were going to do wildfire the same way. Um, but then he decided, no, he, he felt confident enough to do it himself. And I encouraged that because I honestly thought he, he would have been fine writing Invincible by himself. But, um, but he, wanted, he wanted me to backstop him there, so I did. Um, obviously, you know, his career is certainly doing okay. Um, <laughs> But no, that, that the way that collaboration worked was it was it was his plot and my, for lack of a better word, script. Um, but it was the the story was very much a collaboration between both of us. D Dave Dave is one of my closest friends. Um, he he and I he, we, we were in each other's wedding parties. Um, we both live in New York. We see each other all the time. We we do stuff together a lot. Um, so collaborating with him was not exactly a hardship. Um, and you know we're always talking to each other. So it was it was you know. It was a very easy process. And I've seen online that you're each other's uh, counterparts, you from the Prime Universe, he from the Mirror, if I have that right. <laughs> uh, it depends on who you ask. But no, yes, no, Dave is definitely my Mirror Universe counterpart, especially now that he's grown a goatee. That just, you know, feels it. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, there's a, there's a couple other questions in here, but I think they're all pretty much ones that we've covered so far in the discussion. So I, I think, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at that for the, the Facebook questions. Okay. All right. So what other projects do you have going on, Keith? Uh, well, I have two new novels that, uh, are out now or will be out shortly. Um, uh, the latest, I finally wrote, uh, the fifth book in my precinct series, which is my fantasy police procedural. Um, which is kind of Law and Order meets Lord of the Rings. Um, the the last book came out in uh, 2014, and it took me a while to get around to writing the next one. But Mermaid Precinct has been written; it's available for pre-order, um, and uh, you can order it from from, from you can pre-order it from Amazon.com or BN.com or any of the the other online book dealers. Uh, the official release date is June 1st. Um, it's uh, the, like I said, the latest case for, uh, Torrin and Danthus. I also jumped the timeline for the, for the storyline a year. 
um, and created two new precincts, which enables me to do two more books after this. Uh, so we, we will in the future be seeing Phoenix Precinct and Manticore Precinct. And I'm also going to do another short story collection for that. So that series is still going strong. I also debuted a new urban fantasy series called The Adventures of Brom Gold, which is about a nice Jewish boy from the Bronx who hunts monsters. And um, that uh, the first novel, A Furnace Field, has been released in both hardcover and trade paperback and, and an ebook from Wordfire Press. Um, I, I had a lot of fun with it. It's, it's not only writing about my hometown, but writing about my home borough. It's um, usually when people write about New York City, what they're really writing is Manhattan south of 125th Street. Uh, there's a lot more to the city than that. And the outer boroughs in upper Manhattan tend to get ignored, uh, except occasionally Brooklyn. But the Bronx has a lot of cool stuff in it and a lot of interesting history, and I wanted to explore that. So uh, A Furnace Field is the first of, of at least three novels. I've got three under contract uh, that will involve a Brom who is a courser. He is a hunter for hire. Uh, if, if you need a unicorn wrangled, if you need your werewolves minded as they glump around on the night of the full moon, if you need that <laughs> pesky leprechaun to get off your lawn, uh, he's the guy you call. And then <laughs> I hope so. Uh, and my other 2019 novel that's coming out, uh, and it's not available for pre-order as we record this. It might be by the time this episode goes live because it's just going to be up for pre-order any minute. Uh, I'm writing, I've written an alien novel called Isolation, which is based on the video game, also called Alien Isolation, that came out in 2014. It's, uh, the, the video game involves uh, Ellen Ripley's daughter, Amanda. Who so it takes place between the first two Alien movies, uh, between Alien and Aliens. In the extended cut of Aliens, it's established that Ripley had a daughter who died of old age by the time she got rescued in Aliens. Ripley had promised when she set off on the Nostromo prior to the first movie that she would be back in time for her 11th birthday. Um, at the, the game Isolation and also my novel, involves her as a 25-year-old trying to find out what happened to her mother. Uh, they find the Nostromo's flight recorder. They head to a space station where it's housed. The problem is the people who found the flight recorder also found a facehugger. So much wackiness ensues. The, the gameplay is you are Amanda working your way through the station, fighting aliens and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, the novel is about two-thirds an adaptation of that video game and one-third Ripley family backstory. So we get uh, Ripley's life before Alien, we get Amanda's life uh, from all the way up to the game itself. Um, so there's a lot of, of the history of one of science fiction's most iconic characters and her daughter, uh, as well as this adventure with Amanda uh, fighting for her life. Ooh, that That'll be out cool. in July. I hope so. I've got stories in a bunch of anthologies. Uh, one is already out. It's called Release the Virgins. Uh, it has a Dragon Precinct story in it, uh, which is called The Midwinter of Our Discontent. Uh, that anthology also has a lot of other cool stories in it. And the, the only thing the stories all have in common is that the phrase, release the virgins, is in all of them. Um, I've got a story coming out in uh, Elytrix Books anthology called Unearthed, uh, which is about, uh, and, uh, the theme of that is is uncovering containers or coffins or things of that nature that, that have been buried for a long time. Uh, I wrote a Cassie Zukov story, which is part of my cycle of urban fantasy stories set in Key West, Florida. Um, I've got two more coming out in July. 
Uh, one is uh, the latest of the Brave New Girls anthologies, which uh, the subtitle of this one is called Adventures of Gals and Gizmos. Um, and I wrote a story about a, a new character I've created named uh, Constance de la Vega. And also in July is a, a pulp anthology edited by uh, somebody well-known to Star Trek uh, fans, Robert Greenberger. Uh, Bob was the editor of DC Star Trek, monthly Star Trek comic for a long time, and he's also written several Trek novels of his own, uh, as well as a recent uh, history of Star Trek that came out. And uh, Bob, Bob put together Thrilling Adventure Yarns, which is uh, an anthology of short stories uh, that are told in the pulp style. Mine is called Alien Invasion of Earth, and it's about, well, an alien invasion of Earth. It's, uh, it's, it's, an, it's a 1950s-style alien invasion story. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, among other things, besides uh, my story, there's also a bunch of uh, people familiar to, to Trek fiction are in it, uh, including Peter David and David Mack and uh, Derek Tyler Attico, and I think Michael Jan Freeman did a story for it also, and uh, Aaron Rosenberg, Glenn Hellman, a bunch of others. Uh, there's also, I'm, I'm sure there are other people I've forgotten who are in the book, um, but also there is a new story by Lester Dent, who is the creator of Doc Savage. It's a, a previously unpublished story by Dent. Uh, it's going to be in the book as well. So that'll be out in July, both. Uh, both Brave New Girls, Adventures of Gals and Gizmos, and Thrilling Adventure Yarns are going to be debuting at the Shortleaf Convention in Baltimore at the beginning of July. Um, and uh, Bob, who is the editor of Thrilling Adventure Yarns, and Mary Fan, who is the co-editor of Brave New Girls, will be at the convention. I will be at the convention. A lot of the contributors to both anthologies will be at the con as well. I'm hoping I might have copies of Alien Isolation at, at uh, Shortleaf, but it's unlikely. We'll see. Yeah, that's what, the second weekend of July, right? Said, Second uh, weekend of July, yes. Yeah, okay. uh, the, the official pub date for isolation is July 30th, so it is extremely uh, unlikely that we'll have copies in time. Yeah, it's going to be tough, yeah. Um, meanwhile, I'm still uh, writing for Tor.com. I have been reviewing each episode of Star Trek Discovery as it comes out. Uh, so the episodes they go live on Thursday good. night. I'm By sorry? the way, I love your reviews. I Thank should. Uh, I should tell our listeners, go check out Keith's reviews of uh, discovery and, and all the other stuff you review too. Uh, your superhero movie reviews are also great. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's actually uh, fr- Friday has become Keith day at, at tour.com because somebody at CBS for reasons known only to the voices in their head decided that discovery season two episodes should drop on Thursdays, which is frustrating <laughs> um, because the, the, the other feature, the one you just mentioned, uh, Four Color to 35 Millimeter, the great superhero movie rewatch where I am rewatching every single live action movie based on a superhero comic ever is also on Fridays. And that's been, that's 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 a Friday thing. It's been it's been around for about a year and a half now. And Tor didn't really want to move it. And so now I'm stuck having it's made my week slightly more complicated. Also, Thursday nights just aren't as easy to deal with as Sunday nights. It's like Sunday nights were great. I was always home. Even if I was away at a convention that weekend, I was usually home by Sunday night. I could watch the Discovery episode, write the review. It goes up Monday morning. Thursdays, there have been three occasions where I have been away at a convention and had to watch the episode in a hotel room on my iPad and then write the, write the review, nah. <laughs> which is not ideal. <laughs> no. But yeah. uh, I'd much rather be able to sit at home and watch it on my, my very large flat screen TV in my living room, um, which, is, which is a much better way to watch television than on one's five-year-old ipad but uh but we do what we can the uh 
it, 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 I have been enjoying, I've been enjoying writing the reviews of discovery, both last season and this season. I'm enjoying this season of discovery a great deal. Um, I'd be curious to see where they actually bring it all. Cause there, there's a lot of balls juggling in the air right now, but um, in particular, what this season of discovery has done for me is something that uh, I never would have believed possible, which is make me want a captain Pike on the enterprise series. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> because Anson Mount is just killing it uh, as Pike and Ethan Peck is doing likewise as Spock. They're both. And, and Rebecca Romina's number one would just be icing on a cake. And I just, I, I, I need to have that show now. <laughs> yes. We need something, just something, even if it's a mini That would series, be incredible. Just something. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right. And then uh, you're on Twitter, right? Yeah. Um, it, if you go to my website at decandido.net, uh, that has links to my entire online footprint. There's links there to my Facebook fan page. There is links to my Twitter feed, which is at Craddock, K-R-A-D-E-C. I'm on Instagram. Um, there's a link to Tor.com there, a link to my Wikipedia page, a link to uh, my podcast, which is currently on hiatus and may never come back, but there's a link to it anyway in case you want to listen to the old episodes. Um, and uh, and other stuff like that. Plus, there's ordering information for the precinct books and for a furnace sealed there, and there will be ordering uh, information for Alien Isolation once it's up for pre-order. And you can email me from the site, too. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. We really enjoyed the book. I think Dan said it's his favorite Star Trek novel it's- now. I, I have a hard time with the word favorite. I've had to train myself to put one of in front of that one all the time. Well, I'll, I'll take it. Thank you. I, because that, I'd this, have 50 favorites if, if I, if I could. Oh, I get that. Yeah. Um, the, I, I couldn't narrow it down either. Um, the, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, but I, but I do appreciate it. There's, there's, that book meant as much because of my interest in politics, my fandom for the West Wing, and the fact that, that Baca was based on my great-grandmother. That book has meant a lot to me for a lot of reasons. And the fact that it's been as well-received as it has is very gratifying. So thank you. And uh, a quick note from my mom. She said uh, her absolute favorite part was Baco calling Janeway Captain Ro- or Admiral Wrongway. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank her for that. Yes. I will, absolutely. <laughs> yes. You know, one thing that we didn't ask Keith, and I wish I had asked him when he was here, is who exactly at CBS Studios we call to get Keith appointed as showrunner for a series that has the same format as Articles of the Federation, because I would kill for an Articles of the Federation West Wing style television show set in the Star Trek universe. And I realized by saying I would kill for it, I'm really going against Star Trek's uh, philosophy, but I stand by that. (laughs) Well, at the rate that they're releasing different Star Trek series at this point, it just may happen because CBS All Access (laughs) seems to be looking for more things all the time. At least, well, I don't know if this would work, but I was going to say at least a short Treks, but you really couldn't do justice on a short Treks, but you could do one short treks episode that does show the federation government and have a brief little story in that but it wouldn't be the I same would, if as that's, the series if that's all we could get i'd be on board for that because i yeah this i've always said like a a show about the federation government and that sort of thing dealing with crises coming up like i've always thought that was a really cool idea and after reading this book it's just like i'm going to go out and start campaigning for this now i i want it 
Well, it's been fun talking about campaigning for a Star Trek West Wing show, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. He's like, oh, we can't be vague. And he's like, I'm not doing it. Is that vague enough for you? Yeah. That was so great. I know. Yes, Tyler's having these little quip answers, quick-witted, you know, when he's talking with uh, George O. And she's like, I'm going to trust you, but if you betray my trust, I'm going to hunt you down. Literary Treks. And we have the USS Titan, and they're, they're going so far as to make modifications to people's quarters and the different living arrangements to account for various alien physiologies and all that sort of thing. Because not only do we have just a diversity of alien species, we have a diversity of people who aren't even humanoid, which I think is a really cool thing. And something, you know, you can do that in a book at the time more easily than you could on television, for sure. So I think they make really good use of the medium to present us with a crew like this. Warp 5. Because he had a near-death experience, he's now all of a sudden upset that T'Pol won't admit her feelings for him. Right. Right. And now, look, I can understand how the near-death experience triggers that, but this, the payoff of him asking to leave should have happened three episodes from now. Yes, he should be grown up enough. Earl Grey. I mean, of course, the difference with Geordi and Data is that they're regular characters and they're in almost every episode. <laughs> so there's more of that potential for interaction and Guinan isn't in it as many. And I know it wouldn't have been as possible at the time, but I can dream about the next generation starting with Guinan being like a regular there every week. I mean, hey, you know, Quark's a bartender and he's a regular on DS9. Why not Guinan? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Let's go back in time and change that. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond, and you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. Let us know how we're doing. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include... Early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. Find the post for today's episode and leave a comment, and we might just read yours on an upcoming episode. 
If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks. So that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what is coming up for future shows. Plus great conversations happening about the books and comics. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shea Mutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. So Dan, when you're not creating a spreadsheet to keep track of all the characters and articles of the Federation, where can people find you? You know, I create so many darn spreadsheets on Google Docs to keep track of so many things. It wouldn't surprise me that I might have one in there with the characters of Articles of the Federation. But when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kertrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I make videos about Star Trek, mostly about Star Trek Discovery. And we're coming right up to the end of season two there. So really excited about that. Uh, you can also find me on facebook.com slash Productions and in the Babel Conference. Now, Bruce, when you're not sitting down with representatives from two alien races arguing about water rights, where can we find you? Well, you can find me arguing with them at Admiral underscore Rex on Twitter. You can find me recovering from Star Wars Celebration. You can find me doing the Star Wars report, talking about Star Wars Celebration. And you can find me here on the network arguing with Brandy Jackala about Star Trek Discovery. No, we don't really argue. Um, and that's a live show that uh, comes out after each episode of Star Trek Discovery. So if it premieres on Thursday nights, we're live at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific on Friday nights on YouTube. So check that out. You know, that makes a lot of sense because like I, I didn't realize this was the case, but apparently a lot of politics gets done on Twitter. I had no idea how much of that was all taking place on Twitter. So. Yeah, you know. it's what the founding fathers had in mind. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's what they that's what they wanted, <laughs> and that's what we got. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, thank you everyone for listening, and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.